This is episode 217 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Regenerative Strategies of the Intestinal Epithelium with Dr. Ophir Klein. Hey, everybody. We are Drs. Daylon and Arun. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. The Stem Cell Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. Today, we have Dr. Ophir Klein from the University of California, San Francisco on the podcast. He'll be speaking at an upcoming Keystone Symposium, Tissue Fibrosis and Repair, Mechanism, Human Disease and Therapies. That's taking place from June 12th to the 16th in Keystone, Colorado. Today, he'll be talking to us about the research that he'll be presenting at the meeting focused on regeneration of the gastrointestinal tract. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news coming right up. But first, we'd like to remind our listeners about Intestinal Cell News, one of Stem Cell's free weekly scientific newsletters. Intestinal Cell News summarizes all of the latest research, news, jobs, and events in intestinal cell research and delivers it right to your inbox every Friday. Save time and keep current with Intestinal Cell News. You can subscribe for free at intestinalcellnews.com. We're going to jump into the roundup here with a favorite model organism model system of ours the zebrafish and you know it's uh we're a stem cell show but this is certainly a an organism that has tremendous applications for stem cell research and has actually led to a lot of the seminal discoveries in cell division developmental biology so don't hate on the zebrafish that's all i'm saying the title of this paper is skin cells undergo asynthetic fission to expand body surfaces in zebrafish. This is a really fundamental developmental biology story, but I think it has really profound implications for the way we think about cell division and cell development early on during embryogenesis and, and perhaps early postnatal development. So we know that as an animal's surface area expands during development, you know, the, you go from one cell to a bunch of cells really fast during development, especially true in, in zebrafish, which have a very short lifespan and short generation span as well. So to cover the animal, your skin cell populations have to divide fast, all right? They have to respond quickly to the overall growth of the animal to cover the animal, right? To provide significant epithelial coverage. And although there's been a decent amount of work in understanding how the skin moves around in vivo and how it develops, it's still not totally clear how this fast skin division actually happens and how the skin division actually stays on par with the uh, development at the organism level, right? The tissues grow, everything grows, and the skin has to grow on par to cover the organism and keep it alive. What they did here, and these are folks from uh, the Academia Seneca in Taiwan, the last author here is Chen Hui Chen, first author is Qijian Chan. They actually developed an offshoot of a really famous developmental tracker system. This is a, an, an imaging slash um, lineage tracing system that we're all pretty familiar with in Brainbow. It's a really colorful way to track cell lineages, especially in zebrafish. It's been a really powerful system. Uh, they developed a, an offshoot of that called palm skin to actually monitor the growth of these superficial epithelial cells in developing zebrafish larvae. And for those of you who are just joining the show or might not be familiar with zebrafish, like why use zebrafish as a model organism? Well, it grows fast. It's transparent for the most part, which enables these really beautiful imaging studies to be done in this in the system. And genetically, it's really easy to manipulate as well. So they use time-last imaging, and, and just backing up, you really need to see the figures in this particular paper to really fully appreciate what they did here. I think a lot of zebrafish studies are like this, just absolutely stunning, stunning imaging being done here. Uh, they did a bunch of time-lapse imaging, found that these superficial epithelial cells are dividing really fast on the body surface of the developing zebrafish. And during actually a specific developmental window, a single superficial epithelial cell or SEC as they call it, can produce a max of actually four different progeny cells over its lifetime on the surface of the animal. But the real kicker here and the real mind-blowing concept here is, 
is, is the DNA side of things. Okay, so they did a bunch of EDU assays to look at uh, DNA staining, also look at DNA content in these dividing superficial epithelial cells. And they found that these terminally differentiated skin cells keep splitting without DNA replication. Okay, so it's, in my mind, it's a really cheap and easy way to do fast cell division so that skin cells are rapidly covering the organism uh, without really going through mitosis. It's just, okay, you have a cell, an ancestor cell population, it's just going to split. It doesn't matter where the chromosomes or the DNA goes. It's some of these uh, SECs or superficial epithelial cells actually have a 50% reduction in genome size. And the question I have is, isn't that an issue when it comes to like cell survival and downstream? Apparently not. Apparently these superficial epithelial cells are just, their just purpose is just to cover the, the organism. It doesn't really matter how genomically intact they are. And that's, that's really wild to me. Um, so that's kind of the big kicker of this particular paper. And they speculate a little bit about, okay, this isn't a mechanism that's really exclusive to zebrafish, right? Perhaps there's other organisms that are also growing really fast that have to cover their tissues with rapid skin development and division that are also going through this exact same process, this asynthetic cell division. Um, pretty wild concept to think about. It's not specifically a stem cell story, but conceptually, I think it's a really huge advance. I think this is a stem cell story. I mean, just looking at the the phenomena here, it's it's fascinating and it's a real head scratcher. I mean, I've, I'm aware of endoreplication where these cells can undergo repeated rounds of uh, mitosis without telekinesis to form these kind of syncytia. But I never heard of anything like this outside of you know cancer, um, which is, does raise some questions. And I'm just wondering how they even came to this study. You know, it's not something you're like, you know what I think? I think that the cell is just jettisoning half the chromosomes and just going for it and to, to, to cover the body. Like that's not something that I would hypothesize. So I'm curious to know, I would love to talk to these guys and see how they came across this observation or if there was something um, in a different study that led to the hypothesis. I mean, it's just, there's a, there's a story there. Um, but as I alluded to there, the, the greater question for me are kind of like details, like how, how are the chromosomes distributed? Um, is it equal yeah. distribution? Is it kind of just like willy nilly? How many divisions undergo? Like what's the smallest chromosomal complement that you have there? And fundamentally, I would guess conceptually, is this something that really only fits into an organism with a very short lifespan? Um, yeah. Just because like the implications for uh, unchecked cell growth or anything else, um, I would say it would be very high here. So there's a lot of real questions. I have no qualms about the science, such a beautiful study, but just the, the what's going on here. It's just, this is just, you know, kind of kicking open the door for me. Yeah. Your point about lifespan and maybe the fact that this happens in zebrafish or other short lifespan animals uh, exclusively. That, that's a really good point. I didn't even think about that because certainly, yeah, the implications here are cancer. If you have a cell population that has an aberrant number of chromosomes or genomic instability that ultimately could lead to a type of, I don't know, zebrafish skin cancer in this kind of situation, but the fish don't live a long time. So perhaps it never really manifests, but it does go back to the story we covered, I think on the last roundup, we're talking about lifespan in animals and accumulated cancer risk. Uh, I don't know. I think I agree with you. I think there's a lot of questions here, um, but you can't argue with the data. You can't argue with the imaging. And in my opinion, I think that's probably where this study initially came from. They're able to develop this really cool reporter, the skin reporter. And then they thought about, Hey, what can we do with this? Mm. And you can do a lot with it. It seems like. Well, yes, a testament to the zebrafish and the, the power of just direct observation. It's a really amazing tool. No hate on the zebrafish coming from my side of things. But, you know, getting to the cancer question here, if, if we wanted to fix it in these zebrafish, we might be able to with CAR-T. Not that we would, but CAR-T has been an am amazing innovation um, in the medical sciences, specifically in cancer. And it's really changed the landscape. I would go out there and say it's probably the single most impactful innovation of the last couple of decades, more not just because of what's already happened, but but what's yet to come. I think there's a lot of potential for CAR-T moving forward. 
um, there's been unprecedented uh, success uh, in treating relapsed or refractory B cell malignancies. But of course, in, in the background there, what you know, people are talking about, it's no secret, you do have these adverse uh, sequelae, including cytokine release, I mean, call them um, side effects, uh, cytokine release syndrome, um, neurotoxicity are, are relatively common, although we've done better on mitigating those, but they can be fatal. And of course, that's, that's something you always want to avoid. You know, these patients are, are in a tough spot. So I don't think there's any hesitation to use these therapies. But as we move forward, as patients are, have maybe better prognosis, more traditional therapies and CAR-T come, becomes more widespread, it's a real question. Or do we want to subject them to the risk of the cytokine release or neurotoxicity or other related side effects? And the obvious answer there is no. And more so, in order to get these things to really advance in the field, we got to get the CAR-T therapy to work with solid tumors, right? There has been some success, but it's limited. Um, and, you know, there's other issues uh, with that too. If you want to get the CAR-T to work with solid tumors, you kind of got to boost the efficacy. But that, of course, uh, increases the risk of these toxic side effects. And the fundamental problem here is that there's a, a just very few tumor-specific cell surface antigens. Of course, these cells come from us, right? And there's combinations that are expressed in aberrant cells, but you know they share those targets with normal tissues. So it's not surprising that you get these off-target effects. Now, of course, uh, you know people have been aware of this for some time, and there's these more uh, targeted strategies that have been developed to bolster the potency and specificity. Um, but uh, when you're both bolstering the potency, of course, as I said, that increases the risk of toxicity. Uh, and you would like to have these kind of reg regulatory uh, mechanisms like suicide switches, for example, uh, that you could kind of like pull the ripcord on a therapy if you're noticing some of the toxicity. Um, but the, the drug regulatable CAR platforms, uh, they are formulated such that they can be conditional or controlled uh, but they, they haven't really uh, worked so well, or I'd say they've been limited. Uh, some of them have been leaky in the off state, or when, when you're trying to get them to work, you have reduced uh, activity or potency, or you need some immunosuppression in the patient, which of course you would like to avoid. Um, so enter the group of Crystal McCall who is a, a legend, is, was at the NCI for almost 30 years uh, before moving to Stanford uh, just a few years ago in 2016. As I said, she's a legend in the application of these cancer immunotherapies in children. Um, so of course you can see, you can imagine her focused attention on uh, saving these kids without subjecting them to further risk. Uh, and what they report here is uh, engineering of this high performance and drug regulatable system that they call signal neutralization by an inhabitable protease or a SNP, okay? And the idea there is that they have this protease-based platform that can regulate car activity. And the key is that it uses a small molecule that's already FDA approved. So it can go right into uh, the patients without worrying about or additional worry, or I guess it's been vetted um, to show that it's safe and doesn't have too many off-target off side effects. Uh, so it can go into use. And, you know, bottom line here is that you get full functional capacity of the CAR-T when the drug is there um, and no leakiness when the drug isn't there. Uh, and they compared it to uh, constitutive CAR-T models showed that these SNP CAR-Ts were more potent um, and I mean, this, I, I would like to know how, but they show they show diminished T-cell exhaustion, greater stemness, which is a real factor with the CAR-Ts is that they just get exhausted um, and you can't get a therapeutic load in there. And then using a, a model where they, they can kind of recapitulate the, the lethal side effects of CAR, they show that when you withdraw the drug uh, at the onset of toxicity, completely reversed it. Uh, so that validates the thing as kind of a safety switch. And the big idea here is that, especially moving forward with the solid tumors, is that you can really put in a, a pretty large bolus of the CAR-T and you can tune this car, the CAR activity using uh, this drug uh, remotely, so to speak. 
Um, but the, the key idea here is having this mechanism of control. I don't think you have to worry so much at the front end on the input. And you always have this kind of fail safe. If things go wrong, you can shut down the CAR T, which, you know, they live in your body. So that's a key factor. I think a key study, uh, the nuts and bolts of some really important technical applications in the field that are going to make a huge difference. Yeah, this is a great study coming from Dr. McCall's group. And I think we've covered some of her work in the past, real legend in the field, like what you've talked about. I think uh, what you're alluding to is spot on. I mean, CAR T is really revolutionary, but it's not without its own limitations. And I think we need to have ways to selectively regulate these cells when they're in the body, in the body, whether it's selective targeting to the actual cell populations that you're interested in, in defeating the specific cancer cells, or even some situations that we've covered in the past, customized CAR T's that can target other issues in the body, like the fibrosis in the case of the heart and other papers that we've covered. So selective targeting is, is one thing. And then kind of the focus of this paper is more facilitating an on-off switch to really more precisely temporally regulate when these CAR T cells are, are functional. Okay. So I think great advance here. I think there's certainly a, a few limitations, which they talked about. They're kind of obvious ones in my mind. The the big one is the translation from the, the, the mouse model to the human. A lot of these pharmacokinetics of this drug that they're looking at, the gazoprevir, may, may not be as applicable to, to human trials. But I mean, of course, they have to try that in clinical trials, which I'm sure they're, they're going for here. And I think some of the, the long-term functionality of the SNPCAR-T is something they're also wanting to take a closer look at. I think we talked a little bit about lifespan in the previous story, right? Zebrafish versus humans, zebrafish versus whatever. Same kind of problem here, mouse, mouse versus human lifespan is obviously very different. And if you're talking about a long-term remission of cancer, you have to see if these CAR T approaches are going to, are going to stay on target and do their thing for a long period of time in humans. Right? Yes. I mean, certainly a long way to go. I wouldn't even say a long way to go. Certainly some, uh, some, some work to do. Uh, but as I said, this is the kind of nuts and bolts. And as you were alluding to the, all these tools that are being developed, I think this is another one that's emblematic of the effort to, to program uh, these CAR T's, which are already kind of a feat of cellular engineering. So I just love the idea of this, you know, it's kind of, I don't want to go so far as like a computer, but the, as we continue to add to the toolkit, we're really creating these smart or at least smart for our purposes, uh, immune cells that are able to really solve a problem that's forever in the making, right? And, and as you also alluded to there, can also be applied to other problems, you know, like fibrosis. So I'm so excited about CAR-T. I'm so excited to be living in a time and, and not dead yet, because the CAR-T might be extending my life, at least I hope. Well, hopefully you never have to reach that point. You know, fibrosis or ruin, it's already kicking in my joints. That is very true. That is very true. Everybody's going through it, unfortunately, myself included. Got some gray hairs too. Maybe the CAR T can solve that. I don't know. Anyways, what a time to be alive given CAR T and all these other cool technologies that we keep on talking about. We're going to shift a little bit to another technology that we always talk about here on the show, and that's 3D organoids and differentiation of various stem cell types into hepatocytes in this particular situation. And I think this ties in really nicely with the chat we had with Dr. David Hay, who's kind of a, a hepatocyte guru himself and an expert in hepatocyte differentiation from pluripotent stem cells. This is coming from another legend in the stem cell field. This is Rudy Janish's lab over in Boston. First author is Hating Ma, a cell stem cell paper titled the nuclear receptor THRB facilitates differentiation of human pluripotent stem cells into more mature hepatocytes. So this is something that we directly talked about with Dr. Hay, you know, how can we make our hepatocyte differentiations better, more improved? And I remember in our conversation with him, he was telling us, yeah, these things are pretty good. They're being used for clinical applications in some situations, and they have the appropriate expression of cytochrome P450 and they can metabolize drugs in certain situations, but they're still immature in a lot of their ways. And this is the case, not just for hepatocytes, but for all sorts of stem cell derived cell types that we talk about on the show 
ad nauseum. Um, one issue I think I remember with the hepatocytes in particular that are derived from pluripotent stem cells is their continued expression of certain fetal markers like alpha fetal protein. Um, so that's kind of a, an issue and you need to get that gene expression profile more towards a mature hepatocyte. And that's kind of exactly what they were doing here in this particular paper. They wanted to generate more mature iPSC and pluripotent stem cell derived hepatocytes. So what they did is developed a 3D differentiation system and did a ton of omics. All right, this is omics to the max. They compared, they compared the gene regulatory elements in primary hepatocytes, real human hepatocytes, I think this is really important, to the pluripotent stem cell derived hepatocytes that are either differentiated in 2D or 3D conditions by, get this, RNA sequencing, ATAC sequencing, and H3K27 acetylation chip seek. Okay, so all these different types of uh, omics-based approaches, really bioinformatics heavy paper here. Um, they compared all the omics here across the different types of cells, the primary hepatocytes to the differentiated pluripotent stem cell hepatocytes, and actually were able to show a, a reduced enrichment of the thyroid receptor THRB motifs in the accessible chromatin and active enhancers without a reduced transcription of the, the specific gene in the, uh, in the immature cells. Okay, so to me, this was a great hit that they found through all their omics approaches, and this doesn't always happen. Because the criticism in omics and transcriptomics, metabolomics, whatever, you know, chip seek, all these different types of omics approaches, ATAC seek, is that this is fishing, right? It's a fishing expedition. I get criticized in my grant applications and everybody does as well. But sometimes the fishing expedition leads to great specific targets that you might be able to use for downstream approaches, like improving hepatocyte differentiation here, right? So here they're finding the thyroid receptor. Um, and if you're able to find the thyroid receptor, there's a specific hormone that directly acts on the thyroid receptor. So that's exactly what they did, right? They added thyroid hormone, hormone T3. It improved the binding of the THRB to the enhancer and did a bunch of, you know, uh, jumped through a bunch of genomic hoops, right? As I like to think, restored the super enhancer status and improved gene expression of this other gene, NFIC. And most importantly, coming back to what I mentioned at the very beginning of this little conversation, when it comes to the expression of alpha fetoprotein, it reduced the expression of alpha fetoprotein, okay? So that's been a limitation in the hepatocyte differentiation, the expression of these immature markers. But by adding thyroid hormone T3, you're able to reduce some of those fetal markers, okay? And then and that's great. So the resultant, you know, pluripotent stem cell derived hepatocytes showed gene expression, epigenetics, super enhancer landscape that was closer to the primary hepatocytes, which is what you want ultimately. Um, and then what they did, and I'm sure what got it into cell stem cell was they transplanted these Im improved, more mature hepatocytes, pluripotent stem cell derived hepatocytes into the mouse liver without disrupting the normal liver histology. Now, one interesting situation that I, that I noted from their limitation section was that this, this liver model that they used, it wasn't an unhealthy liver model. It was a, a healthy liver model. So they basically transplanted these pluripotent stem cell hepatocytes into a healthy mouse liver. I said, okay, wouldn't it make more sense to transplant them into a failing mouse liver? But according to their limitation section, they weren't able to obtain that particular mouse line which I actually found kind of shocking for somebody of Dr. Janish's caliber that they weren't able to obtain a particular mouse line living so close to the, the Jack's, Jack's labs as well, just a few hours away, right? I don't know. That was a, a little weird to me, Dale. Well, Arun, you know, he does have his limitations. He can't have it all. Rudy Janish on this <laughs> earth, 80 years. He just turned 80. I wow. mean, gosh, my, my, my dude has been doing it forever. Um, and, you know, I, he had his, I wouldn't say even his heyday, but there was a, a time of just a massive productivity from the Yanish lab, maybe a decade ago. And he, he uh, has kind of kept moving, right? And here I'm finding him working in, in hepatocytes. I didn't know he did anything with hepatocytes. I think my takeaway here, apart from the science, which I think is really great. And, and to that point, um, and uh, kind of alluding to your point as well, is all that omics, and all that, I guess, fishing, you would call it, I think you're able to do that when you're Rudy Anish because, you know, because you've done enough and you can be more expansive 
in your ambitions. And I love a study like this because it's true discovery, you know, like no one was looking at this. There was no, it's kind of like the skin cells in the, in the, in the fish there. Like, I don't know that there was an obvious hypothesis sitting there waiting to be proven. So I'm impressed by this and particularly impressed by a, an investigator like Dr. Yanish, who at this, you know, august phase of his, his career and advanced, not advanced age, he's still kicking obviously, but you know, I, I'm just really, it gives me hope that I, I could continue to be productive up to that point. And it's kind of, a, I think, a, a roadmap because the way he's done it is just, he's really applied the tech, the omics and kept moving, uh, wandering into, into many different fields, but maintaining his core, you know, strength in gene expression, epigenetic regulation. So he's, he's really a, a great investigator and, and someone that I admire and look up to. I'm sure you do too, Arun. Yeah, absolutely. He's an icon in our field. And a lot of the guests, a lot of the guests on the show have been former Janish Lab trainees. Krishnu Saho, I believe, was a Janish Lab uh, trainee just not, not a few years ago. Marius Vernig, I think, also. So he's trained a number of outstanding stem cell scientists as well. And I think that's a reflection of his ability, not only as a scientist, but as a mentor, because ultimately that's what that's what carries on, right, Dylan? Absolutely. Another great mentor in the field, Juan Carlos Espazua Belmonte. But while Yanish is trying to make more mature hepatocytes, Belmonte is trying to do the opposite here. I got a story coming out of <laughs> cell reports. Um, and, you know, this is related. I think it's a good, we're kind of calling back to, to the last episode a bit here today. Uh, we had the, the bombshell in nature about the chemical reprogramming. Um, and, and when we were talking about that there, we talked about what's, what's necessary and kind of lower vertebrates, you have this regenerative capacity that's based on de-differentiating the cells and, and de-differentiation is not really evident in mammals, uh, to the same extent as it is in, in other vertebrates, um, like fish and salamanders. And it's, you know, probably because of cancer and all that stuff that we've talked about. Um, but the question, I think, is whether or not you can induce uh, de-differentiation in vivo to like a therapeutic effect. And I think this is maybe derived from the early days when we we're talking about direct reprogramming of taking, you know, like Deepak famously in the heart uh, to convert fibroblasts to cardiomyocytes. And then I guess kind of a, a you know, balls out approach. Sorry for the term. That's actually not an inappropriate term. It's from trains. Arun and our right. listening audience balls out. I'm saying I'll it. Take, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the approach I think shifted. So let's just put Oxum in there. Um, and, you know, this was, I think, a study uh, demonstrated first by uh, Belmonte about six years ago in Cell Ocampo et al. They, they showed in this premature model of aging in mice that they could express Oxum um, transiently and it'd have a good effect. And then since then, there's been multiple studies from David Sinclair, also other studies from Belmonte lab in muscle, optic nerve, cardiomyocytes, suggesting that you can have short-term expression of this 4F. Um, they call it 4F, which is the, the four Yamanaka factors and get the cells into a plastic state in, in vivo, and then they'll increase proliferation and regenerate. Um, the key here and obvious is that, yeah, if you're going to overexpress the Yamanaka factors in vivo, you, you worry about cancer. And that's, that's a critical question before you're doing any of this in vivo. I mean, we're not even to the level of theoretical application until we've addressed that. Um, and I think that's where this, this paper really uh, made its, its uh, impact was using a mouse model that enabled not only a uh, expression, inducible expression of the Yamanaka factors, but also it, concomitantly it labeled those cells so you were able to track them. Um, and in this case, they chose the liver as I, I started out saying, uh, because while mammal and mammalian tissues generally don't regenerate, the liver happens to be one that does regenerate uh, if it's not too severely in injured. So they use this hepatocyte specific expression of 4F um, while also being able to label the cells. And what they found was that, yes, if you get this partial reprogram, you can get the adult hepatocytes terminally differentiated, kind of reverting to a progenitor state uh, where they're highly proliferative. Um, there's 
global changes in DNA accessibility and acquisition of liver stem progenitor cell markers. Uh, and then they show mechanistically that it's dependent on topar isomerase two or top two A. Um, and they show there's this regeneration of the liver. Uh, so, I mean, yes. Well, the idea at first glance of using oxim in vivo is I, I think a little bit unsettling. Um, at least I think in, in theory, they've demonstrated here that they can, they can get this to work in the liver in a way that seems to be controllable. No overt evidence of tumors. I think uh, what they have left to do is really exploit this lineage tracing system to provide a maybe more expansive and rigorous examination of, of whether or not these cells are present in other tissues. This was a cell reports paper. I think if they've taken it to that level, um, and maybe it could have gone a bit higher impact. But nevertheless, I, I think it's a, another application of the Yamanaka, the Yamanaka factors, um, in this case, not towards pluripotency, but a kind of intermediate state that totally makes sense, um, maybe therapeutically totally impractical. It remains to be seen. Arun, what do you think? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I, have, I have a lot to say about the OSKM-based approach. I'll get to that in a minute. I, I do think it was a little... To me, it didn't make the most sense as to why you would use OSKM in a liver model, because like what you're alluding to, the liver is one of those organs that regenerates like crazy anyways, right? I think the real hope and application for potential OSKM-based dedifferentiation and differentiation is, is more for cell populations and tissues that don't have great regeneration inherently, like the heart, for example, or other cell types as well. Uh, so that, I mean, that's just me conceptually wondering why they picked this particular uh, model. And the other thing is, I mean, that, that's not to say that the liver doesn't have issues and situations that uh, limit its regenerative capacity, like chronic liver injuries, that sort of thing, fibrosis, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, but they still need to test some of those things, even in this, the context of this particular model. And they actually specifically mentioned it in the limitations of their study. Now, the, the second part, uh, the second part of this and kind of what I'll leave you with is um, the Belmonte group is now very closely intertwined with this new startup, Altos Labs, right? Which has received a ton of funding, billions of dollars from different investors because they believe, the scientists believe, the investors believe that this OSKM based approach is really the solution to a lot of different things, perhaps aging, you know, perhaps regeneration all these kind of things. I think this is one of the papers that's suggesting that OSKM mediated reprogramming can be useful in a lot of ways. And there's been other papers like David Sinclair's group that you mentioned, they had OSKM based expression in the eye and showed enhanced regeneration there. I'm with you. And I think a lot of folks in the stem cell field are, are with you and um, that the jury is still out on the clinical application of the OSKM based approach. I think this is a, it's a really cool phenotype and we all know the power of the Yamanaka factors and creating iPSCs, but utilizing them for clinical approaches, especially when you're dealing with something like MYC, right? An oncogene in itself. And these are very, very powerful transcription factors. So finding that balance between clinical efficacy and reducing aging or improving uh, cell health it ha you know that balance between that and cancer is something that's going to be at the forefront of everybody's minds i think yes and uh, i mean important to note here as you said mick right and the sinclair group left mick out right so they just had osk presumably because the risk of mick was was too high but maybe a billion dollars can mitigate that risk maybe they can de-risk ox 4f uh, with a billion dollars. I don't know. Maybe they'll just buy some car T's to get rid of the tumors once they show up. We'll have to see, Arun. Uh, maybe we could talk about this, this with our guest, uh, Dr. Klein. But before we get to that, I have a quick message from Stem Cell Technologies. Are you looking to add more physiological relevance to your research? Intesticult Media provides a complete workflow for establishing, maintaining, and differentiating human intestinal organoids. Use Intesticult Organoid growth medium to establish and maintain organoids in a more proliferative state to achieve more physiologically relevant proportions of differentiated cell types for your experiments, passenger cultures in intestinal organoid differentiation medium. 
Receive an offer to try and test a cult in your lab by visiting Stem Cell Technologies online right now at www.stemcell.com slash try dash intesticult. All right, everybody, on today's episode, newly of Cedars-Sinai, we have with us Dr. Ophir Klein, who is the David and Meredith Kaplan Distinguished Chair in Children's Health at Cedars-Sinai, also professor at University of California, San Francisco. The Klein Laboratory focuses on understanding how organs form in developing embryos and how they regenerate in adults. When developmental and regenerative processes go awry, then birth defects, cancer, and other diseases can result. The group's research is centered on understanding how development and regeneration normally occur in the hope of one day treating diseases that result from abnormalities in these processes. Ophir will be presenting a talk titled Regenerative Strategies of the Intestinal Epithelium at the upcoming Tissue Fibrosis and Repair Mechanism, Human Disease and Therapies Keystone Symposium that's taking place from June 12th to the 16th in Keystone, Colorado. Dr. Klein, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. All right. Uh, you know, there are developmental stem cell biologists that go really deep into a specific organ system and define all the cells, molecules that govern the physiology and development and different pathological contexts. And then there are those that tackle fundamental questions with relevance across organ systems, you know, talking about like metabolism or like wind signaling, which is everywhere, right? But your group goes deep into multiple systems, across systems and beyond, even going back in time with your Evo Devo work with such a broad range, my relatively superficial introduction to your lab seems insufficient. Why don't you summarize for us what your group is all about? Well, actually, I think you, I think you summarized it really well. So we have a general interest in understanding how cells make organs and then repair organs. And for us, stem cell biology is really a branch of developmental biology, as I think a lot of developmental biologists would would feel that way. Um, and so we try to apply principles uh, and approaches from developmental biology to stem cell biology and regenerative medicine. Hmm. So if you're, you know, a big part of your lab is studying like craniofacial and dental development and, and renewal is something we actually don't talk a whole lot about here on the show, uh, in particular, looking at the morphogenesis of the teeth and the face as well. And over the, year, over the years, you've actually used like this really cool model system and very unique in the rodent incisor to actually understand the role of adult stem cells and craniofacial development. And we're big fans of unique model systems, cool model systems on the show, but I don't think we've actually discussed this one before. So tell us a little bit about how you actually started working with the rodent incisor of all things as a model system and its overall utility. Yeah, so it was honestly a little bit serendipitous when I started as a postdoc at UCSF in Gail Martin's lab, uh, I became interested in understanding tooth formation. And part of that was a phenotype that we came upon. And part of it was my clinical interest as a geneticist. I see a lot of patients with, with craniofacial anomalies. And um, I didn't actually know anything about the dentition as a non-dentist. It's something that we don't really learn about in medical school. And then I started reading papers and was just fascinated by the ability of, um, of many different species to grow their teeth continuously. And so from an evolutionary perspective, this is actually a really interesting question because if you go back to when teeth first arose in early vertebrates, you have animals like sharks or you know, fish which continuously replace their teeth. And that's a stem cell driven process, but it's different than what happens in mammalian teeth that grow continuously because there was this intermediate period when the mammals arose that roots formed. And then only later uh, was the ability to grow teeth continuously evolved uh, in, in many different lineages. There's at least, I don't know, eight or nine extant lineages. If you think of elephants with their tusks or um, uh, pigs grow their teeth continuously, many, many mammals are able to do so. So, um, for me, what, what was interesting about it was first what you pointed out, which is that it is a relatively underexplored system. And I think anytime you turn over a rock in science and, and look for something new, you're going you're gonna to discover things that, that uh, haven't been found in, in other systems. Um, and that's been the case in many of the experiments that we've done. Um, and then the other thing that was really interesting for me was the, the evolutionary connection, because we can actually, in the fossil record, this 
this might be the only organ that you can actually watch uh, stem cells evolve uh, over time because of because of the fossil record. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you you said there that uh, in science, you know, how you're led to your life's work it can be a, a, a kind of unpredictable path. There, you turn over a stone, you don't know where it leads. And I'm, I'm reminded by that about how far afield you've kind of gone across the board, but in one particular study that uh, I'm reminded of looking at your work, um, I was intrigued by this collaboration you shared with a pretty wide constellation of scientists. It was published about a year and a half ago that was analyzing facial images from over 7,000 subjects. And then it used this machine learning to develop an approach for autom automated uh, syndrome diagnosis. And I, mean, I mention it, and because I know this isn't strictly speaking a stem cell story, but we've been discussing AI a lot in the last few years, I would guess, on the show. And I think this is yet another example of how scientists who are trained in, you know, wet wet systems, so to speak, um, and genetics are kind of being drawn, um, are, are drawing technologies from other fields, and and. I think it's evident in the author list. I counted 38 authors on that paper, which is about five times your average. Th does that speak to the complexity of integrating computer and biological sciences? I mean, besides the, the obvious diagnostic potentialist approach, how else do you see AI, machine learning, and, and similar kind of approaches being integrated with the work of stem cell biologists and other scientists? Yeah, so as you point out, so this this wasn't not a, a stem cell story. This was, uh, you know, you could say more of a developmental biology story. And the reason that it had so many people participating was exactly what you're mentioning, which is the very wide range of expertise that we needed. So we have geneticists, we have um, clinicians who see patients and collected the material. We had machine learning and AI experts. We had morphometricians and needed all of those different people to, to make the, the story work. Um, you know, one of the take-homes for me from this project was how powerful the AI and machine learning tools can be. And I would say for stem cell biology and a lot of the different techniques that are growing, image analysis, um, sequence analysis, I, I would envision growing roles for, for AI and machine learning um, in there. And, um, yeah, I mean, we, we can also talk more about that, that paper, but since it's not a stem cell biology story, I won't, I won't get into it in too much detail unless you guys have more questions. Well, I mean, it's just an example of how you're not afraid to kind of jump outside of your comfort zone, perhaps. And you know, if we do want to bring it back to the stem cell side of things, you are also really interested in organoids, which is a, you know something that your lab is also focused on. You actually had this really cool dev cell paper, developmental cell paper that actually just came out that's using both your intestinal epithelial and rodent insider incisor model systems to actually study a particular gene and SRSF1, uh, focusing a little bit more on the alternative splicing side of things, right? And you're looking at how per gender specific alternative splicing can maintain adult tissue homeostasis. So a little bit more focused on the developmental side of things and the, on the stem cell side of things. Uh, you know, for a lot of labs, I think they, they like to stick with their favorite model systems, but like what you just talked about, you're not afraid of branching out a bit, even if the model systems are kind of at the opposite ends of the gastrointestinal tract in this example. So tell us a little bit about this work and in particular, maybe how important alternative splicing might be to regulate adult tissue homeostasis. We don't talk about it a whole lot, um, but not just adult tissue homeostasis, but also, you know, epithelial tissue homeostasis and so on. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate the question because it's something that I think about a lot in, in terms of the lab is the advantages and disadvantages of depth versus breadth. And um, I, I think you can do you can do a lot when you bring what you know to a new question, but you also have to be very careful that you don't know all of the sort of potential pitfalls and and um, and areas that you need to really consider in detail in that tissue. So. I, I do think it's an important thing, especially for people who are starting off to try to focus on getting to know a system really well before branching out too much. Um, so in terms of this specific project, this was uh, another example of, some, uh, of a collaboration that we really benefited from expertise of a number of labs, both at UCSF and, uh, and other institutions to identify the role of a couple of different uh, genes that are involved in splicing and um, 
one of them had a more general role uh, in all of the epithelial cells, whereas another one had really a specific role in regulating the progenitors. And what we found was that it, it regulated the splicing of many, many genes, but we were able to hone in on just a few, um, particularly those uh, in the P53 pathway that seemed to be really critical for the behavior of the progenitor cells and for their ability to replenish the tissue. Uh, and so you're right, it, this, this was uh, an example, an area that people have not looked as much at, which is how splicing regulates the behavior of, of adult progenitor cells. Yeah, another, I guess, angle uh, or outside the box, I'm thinking um, evident from the lab is, and I think this is just a different way of thinking of things that have implications and, and um, can be applied conceptually across mother, many other systems. I'm talking about this nature paper uh, from a few years back now, but I wanna highlight it. it. It used uh, mice and intestinal organoids to elucidate the influence of parasitic infection on the intestinal stem cell niche, showing that it actually caused a reversion to this fetal-like phenotype. And I like this because I think we're, we're, we think so much about, you know, in developmental adult homeostasis, regeneration, and, and some disease pathology, of course, but I don't think a lot of people think about infection. And, and this is something that's so prevalent has become aware, uh, really highlighted by the pandemic. Um, and in this case, you also showed that this was secondary to the inflammatory influence of the infection. From my vantage point, this seems to have really broad implications regarding not just infection, but also all type inflammation and the intersection with intestinal function and cancer maybe. Um, can you walk us through the biological and clinical relevance of those findings and maybe discuss some of the broader implications? Uh, sure, yeah, so, so this was uh, a project that developed as a result of a very close collaboration formed between our lab and Rich Lox's lab at UCSF. And I have to really credit the graduate student at the time in the lab, Iceburnless, who formed a partnership with a postdoc, Adam Savage, in Rich's lab. And together, they really drove something that I don't think either lab would, would have been able to do by itself. And um, that was to understand how a parasite uh, and, and the, um, the immune response that that parasite triggers, which is an expertise of Rich's lab, and how that affects the intestinal epithelium, which is what, what we've been studying. And so what Iceburn and Adam found was that when the parasite infects the gut, uh, it was known that the part of the life cycle of the parasite is to invade through the wall of the gut and live encircled by immune cells uh, for a while as a larva there. And the uh, stem cells are in these structures called crypts. And it was known that the crypts right near the, where the, the parasite lived were actually hyperproliferative. So our initial hypothesis was that something either made by the worm or by the immune cells was causing hyperactivation of the normal stem cell program. And then we were really surprised when we looked to see that rather than that being the case, that the, the entire transcriptional program, the suite of genes that are kind of the signature of the intestinal stem cells was turned off. And rather what was turned on was a group of genes that are typically expressed by fetal epithelium. So it was reverting, uh, in a sense, back to an earlier time in its, in its life cycle, the epithelium, in order, presumably, to uh, respond to this, to this damage. And this is something which was found um, by a number of other groups. Uh, one of them is Kim Jensen's group in, um, in Copenhagen, uh, and other labs have, have since identified similar features where there's this reversion to some kind of uh, fetal or early gene expression program in response to damage. What do you think is that? I mean, does that speak to any other kind of chronic? You talk about COVID and it's emerging more and more that the secondary inflammatory processes. Do you think there's a possibility that we should be paying a lot more close attention to just general inflammation in the intestine or elsewhere? Or do you think this is a, a manifest specifically from this uh, parasite and, the, and a, like a local influence on in the crypts there? Well, let me first just give the caveat that I'm not an immunologist. I can be very careful when I uh, pontificate about these issues. I, you know, from my from my perspective as a as a stem cell biologist, 
uh, and somebody who didn't grow up in the immunology world, it's been really amazing to me to see how many different areas of what we work on are influenced by the immune system. And um, we've now had a number of collaborations that, that work with immunologists. And so I would agree with the, the premise of what you said, which is that inflammation is a very important part of disease and, and uh, it's gonna be an important part of stem cell and, and, and regenerative medicine. Um, the case of this parasite is, is interesting in that there are both local and long range effects in terms of the immune system, we had really focused only on the local effects uh, and specifically that, that was because of how we set up our experiment, which is that our comparison was not uninfected tissue, but rather tissue that was at a distance from the site of infection, but from the same animal. And we know that the infection with these parasites does have long range effects. So that's something that our lab needs to look at more is um, essentially comparing sites that are at a distance from the infection with sites from uninfected animals. I think as a stem cell biologist, you answered that question just fine, even if it's outside of your area of expertise. <laughs> but, you know, I think it's an example of a story that came about as a result of a really unique collaboration. And unfortunately, you know, as of the reality of the last couple of years, it's been a little bit trickier to initiate some of these collaborations, unless they're, of course, within a single institution. Cross-institutional collaborations have become trickier, yeah. you know, through the hybrid and virtual formats, but maybe that's changing over the, the next few months. It's it's an issue, right? And hopefully as these conferences become in person as what's happening over the next few months, uh, this is going to change, right? And a big part of establishing collaborations is meeting folks at conferences, like say, for example, the Keystone Conference, right? Which we all know and love. Uh, you're actually giving a talk at the upcoming Keystone Symposium on tissue fibrosis and repair, uh, focusing on the work that you're talking about, you know, regenerative strategies in the intestinal epithelium. I mean, for me personally, I, I've always loved the Keystone Conference. It's, you know, it's Keystone Symposia have been some of my favorite conferences to attend in person, especially for trainees. I think trainees have a lot of fun. You get to meet, you know, big name folks in your field in a very small conference, just a couple hundred people, right? Uh, for the people out, who out there might not know, you know, these Keystone conferences are these smaller, more intimate meetings where you get to chat with some of the biggest names in the field. I actually remember, I can tell a little story. I remember going to a stem cell focused Keystone symposium at Lake Tahoe as a grad student when I was a grad student at Stanford. And I actually got to meet with you know, Shinya Yamanaka in that would never happen in these gigantic meetings sometimes. Right. But I had a like one-on-one -on -one conversation with Shinya and it was super cool and very inspirational as a, as a trainee. And then of course you get to hit up the snow and the, the slopes for some snowboarding and skiing after that it's a lot of fun so i mean tell us about your experience of the keystone symposia and you know maybe your take on this whole virtual versus in-person meeting debate what do you prefer do you think that the the hybrid meeting is the way of the future and it's here to stay yeah i have a lot of thoughts on this um i totally agree that with what you said at the beginning which is that the virtual world has made particularly collaborations across institutions trickier. Um, I think it's it's even more so the case for, for trainees, like you said, for those of us who have been around for a little while, we, we know people, we can continue the conversations we were having before, but the young people can't really initiate them unless they cold call somebody and set up a Zoom. And that is, that is not easy. And um, for me, with a lot of the early interactions that I had at conferences were really transformative in terms of setting up the, the types of projects that we have. Um, I do understand the perspective that for certain people, um, you know, people with young kids, people with disabilities, people from countries that don't have a lot of research funding, that the virtual conferences have brought things to the table. And I hope that we can try to think about how we, we can keep some of those elements. Although, for me, it's the face-to-face -face is, is so important. And um, I just last week, I went to visit a collaborator's lab in Chicago that I hadn't seen since before COVID. We have a grant together, spent afternoon meeting with him and his students. And we accomplished, we both agreed, we accomplished more in that one afternoon than we had over many, many hours of, of Zooms. And um, I actually, you know, I ran a Keystone uh, last year that was supposed to be in person and became virtualized. And you know, I think it was fine. It was it was better than nothing, which was 
what you know all we could do at the time but it certainly wasn't um wasn't the same as as being in person and i guess the last last point i would make is that so i'm on the the board of a, a scientific research organization which has struggled with the costs of having hybrid meetings and it seems like for a lot of groups it basically costs twice as much to have because the, the costs of hybrid are, are so high. So I don't know that in the long run, unless we can figure out a way to really bring the cost down, that it's going to be sustainable to try to have hybrid meetings. But you know, I do think that having some some way for people who are not able to be there in person to benefit from it, uh, particularly people from from countries that can't afford to come, is is an important thing to keep in mind. That's a great point about the cost. I'd always considered that the virtual one silver lining there was that it kind of flattened the, the uh, entry point. You know, you could attend from across the globe and you couldn't very well charge a thousand dollars to attend a conference virtually. But I didn't consider that the, yeah, the, the revenue there is probably um, less. And also the associated costs with doing virtual and in person together must be exorbitant. But whether we like it or not. Yeah. The ISSCR this year is taking the hybrid approach, and I can't be more—I couldn't be more excited to get back into the mix, in spite of having the virtual element. In fact, I'm psyched to have some of the the bonus elements of the virtual, minus all the gamifying. I'm not into the gamifying. Arun and I have talked about it, but there's certain elements of the virtual I'm really into. Um, lo and behold, the conference is taking place where you've spent most of your life, sunny San Francisco. Um, I attended the ISS as a trip down memory lane. I mean, they love to have it in San Fran and uh, I can't argue with it. It's a great host city. Um, I, I missed the last one, but I attended uh, in 2010, the San Fran ISSCR and it was glorious. Uh, just a little trip down memory lane. Irv was present, Irv Weissman. Um, Joanna Wasika, uh, another major thought leader in the field of craniofacial development like yourself received the Outstanding Young Investigator Award, all right? Um, and she's, you know, at her stage right now, it seems like forever ago. Uh, Gordon Keller, Ken Chen and Christy Mummery were clapping each other on the back for achieving yields of 50% with their cardiomyocyte diffs. And Arun will tell you now that's not very impressive. Um, although it was then for sure. Kevin Delmore uh, introduced the encapsulation device for pancreatic beta cells that would become the basis of the viacyte approach, which is big news. Um, although, you know, it hasn't been an unrivaled um, success to date. Uh, and the senior, this is a big kicker, the senior director of neurobiology itself therapies from Geron described their plans for injecting oligodendrocytes into the spinal cord of patients with two weeks, uh, within two weeks of injury uh, and shared, and this was huge news and a real milestone in the field, I think, shared that the trial was temporarily put on hold after the identification of microscopic epithelial cysts. Um, although the, the PR there was, don't worry, because they appear benign. Um, so we, we've really come so far in, in the last dozen years. Uh, what do you think have been some of the most instrumental advances in getting us to this point? You know, we're really on the cusp of therapies, or we thought maybe we were on the cusp a dozen years ago, but now I really believe it. Um, and, and what do you think are, are the remaining barriers uh, to, to realizing the tremendous potential that we've been selling for almost two decades now surrounding uh, stem cell therapeutics? That's a, that's a big question. Um, let me first say that I agree with you that there's been amazing progress and that we're much closer to getting therapies into patients. And uh, in many cases, there are clinical trials going on across a number of diseases. I think that the initial visions that, that were put forward were overly optimistic considering how much work has been required to, to get to where we are. Uh, but it has been, it seems like it has been accelerating and every year we're, we're, we're getting closer and closer. Um, a lot of the barriers these days, it seems as we're, continue to make enormous progress on the basic science and involve the practical aspects of how do you scale up individualized therapies, make them commercially viable, uh, questions that, that are not trivial to answer given the costs involved and the, and the complexities of the systems. Um, my, I'm, I'm an optimist and my guess is that we're gonna come up with approaches that are gonna make some of the 
the things that seem insurmountable right now, uh, like the idea of, of having, uh, being able to, to take people's cells and manipulate them and get them back into, into patients, which, which just seems such a, such a challenging issue from a regulatory and, and commercial perspective. I do think that within a few years, there will be some advances that, that mitigate some of these challenges. But, you know, I'm, I'm an optimist. I think it's good to, to have a lot of optimists in our field, uh, you know, which hasn't always been optimistic over the last couple of decades, yeah. I will say that. But, you know, I think a lot of bringing therapies to the clinic and to patients appropriately has to do with the, the institutions that are involved in making these, uh, translating these discoveries, right? And of course, you were at UCSF, at UCSF, which is a tremendous institution for not only basic science, but also for clinical therapies as well, and translating these basic discoveries to clinical uh, utility. And, you know, wrapping things up here with a little bit of recent news, you've actually moved to another institution just down I-5, which is certainly a, a clinical powerhouse and also a rising basic science powerhouse as well. And that's that's where I am, Cedars-Sinai Medical Center, right? Uh, you're actually going to be the inaugural executive director of the Cedars-Sinai Guerin Children's and also the David and Meredith Kaplan Distinguished Chair in Children's Health. So congratulations. Um, this is a, it's a big time new initiative from Cedars with the goal of setting up a continuum of primary and specialty care for patients and outpatients as they grow from newborns to kids to adults. So it seems like you're the perfect person for, for this initiative. Um, now, you've been at UCSF for a, a really long time, and, and I'm sure making that decision to move to Cedars down I-5 wasn't an easy one, but tell us what excites you about this move and what you're hoping to establish through your new position here at Cedars. Yeah, I have been at UCSF for almost 20 years, and you're right, it was a very difficult decision because I love UCSF. It's an amazing institution, and um, I have nothing but the fondest feelings about the place and, and the people. And in fact, my lab is still there and we're going to have a long-term interaction with, with UCSF. For me, what drew me to this opportunity was the enormous potential that I saw. As you mentioned, Cedars is an institution with incredible clinical strengths and enormous ambition to grow the the research parts of the institution already a lot of a lot of strong areas and making big investments and when i thought about this opportunity it seemed like there was a chance to look beyond my own career my own individual work and think about how we could make contributions that impact the health of a region and the health of a population and do that in a way that was really scientifically driven and that integrated a lot of some a lot of the the ideas that had interested me uh, as we built something uh, from the ground up and so uh, it was just really a, a unique and, and singular opportunity it seemed yes congratulations what an amazing capstone and I, I like that that it's a it inspires me you know it's a, your personal ambitions and then I guess when you transcend and you've met all the the, the goals in your personal career, you start to think more about your legacy and the bigger picture, right? About, about the patients and the people and, and your trainees and everybody. So congratulations on reaching that, you know, apex where you don't care about yourself anymore, Ophir. Um, and on that note, I think it's a good opportunity to get a little bit deeper into that self, not the science self, but your own self uh, with some science peripheral questions that might be of interest to some of the trainees, your own and elsewhere. Um, first, what, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given, either professional or not? So I've been given a lot of good pieces of advice. The one that, that comes to mind from a scientific perspective is something that my both my graduate and uh, postdoc advisors said in, in various ways, which is don't either don't look at your data with too much love or don't fall in love with your data. Um, and I always found that to be really helpful because particularly as a, as a younger scientist, you get so excited by findings. And if you don't force yourself to be really skeptical, and of course you have to keep doing this as a, as a PI when, when you're looking at, at data generated in your lab, then you can very easily get misled and go down a path which is not fruitful. And so I, that's something that I always try to remind myself is, it's awesome to get excited when, when a new discovery is made, but 
but don't fall in love with the data and really try to be as critical of it as you can. Yes, I mean, my PI, uh, our advisor said something very similar to me, just said, just because it was a great idea doesn't mean it's the truth. And, and I've always had that, <laughs> that around with me. That's a good point. Um, and finally, what's the biggest misconception about science that you'd like to resolve? Well, I know that there are some trainees listening to this, and I would say a misconception that that I had and that I encounter in a lot of people who are considering science as a career is the idea of the lone scientists working by themselves at the bench. And so people often ask me about medicine versus science, and they say, well, you know, I really want to work with people and I want to, I want to have a lot of interactions. And the thing that's been, I guess, most surprising to me is what a great career being a scientist is from a personal perspective and how much time you spend with other people and what great friendships you make and how rewarding it is to work with younger scientists and, and train them and watch them as they go on to, to their own successes. And so that's, that's a, a misconception that I try to dispel in people's idea that if you go into science, you're, you're destined to kind of be by yourself working in, in a little lab. That, the truth is that you spend most of your time talking to people, learning from them, having fun with them, and that it's, it's really a great uh, career from that perspective. Yeah, I, th I think the archetype just doesn't fit anymore. I mean, uh, if there's anything that we've learned from this podcast is what an amazing range of dynamic personalities of really diverse interests and you know different types, and they're all very cool. Um, so I don't know, maybe it's a computer programmer is a new loner in, in, the, in the lexicon, but I, I doubt that's even true. Um, regardless, we're all together here and uh, you're, you're expanding your group of fear congratulations on that and thank you for sharing uh, all your insights and, and thoughts um with all of us uh, we really appreciate your time yeah thank you guys for having me it's been really fun that brings us to the end of our show don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or by email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Episode 217 in the bank. Guys, thanks for listening. Please tune in in a couple of weeks. We'll have a fresh one for you.